Well, good morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we did our Thanksgiving dinner here. Um, the children really enjoyed decorating the tree. Um, made my heart happy. They also, thanks to the ladies in the children's church, they made ornaments. Um, I think they plan on doing that every day to add to the tree um, that we're here. Um, but so, she, okay, I thought she was about to start crying. <laughs> um, so we have the Christmas dinner coming up. I have made the menu and we put it out beside the tree. It's um, kind of dark with the wall, but it sh it's illuminated enough that you should be able to see it uh, with ease. But we're doing Italian style. Um, the top of it says Bon Natale. It means Chris Merry Christmas in Italian. So, um, yeah, we thought that would be a nice little touch to the menu. Um, but we have uh, the sign-up up there. Also, this Saturday, we're doing the ladies' meeting at Johnny's at 10 o'clock. Bring an ornament. Um, you don't have to, but we do an ornament exchange, and it's a lot of fun. We'll take care of business first, and then I believe we'll eat and do the ornament exchange. Um, also, we have the angel tree going. We have two families we're sponsoring. There's seven children total. So um, the blessing box is on the side of the sound booth um, if you want to donate to the angel tree. We are also doing some small gifts for the children during our Christmas dinner that's on the 18th. Um, which is a part of the menu out there. Um, if you want to donate to that, you can. It's, it's um, not necessary. We also have a few ladies that have just donated, um, like some blankets and little piggy banks and stuff. Um, please get it kind of a little bit of approved on the gifts before you go spend your money. We do have a lot of small children. We just want to make sure it's everything is safe and labeled for each age group for the children. But please come out, bring family, friends. We want as many people as possible. Um, and we look forward to seeing you. Come on, Zach McAnulty. <laughs> Thank you. Good one, Natalie. Merry Christmas. It's going to be a good time. I'm excited for the food there. Uh, so also, really, uh, really quick, we are also doing Freshwater on Friday night. So if you guys are familiar with Freshwater, it's a worship ministry that, um, that me and some of the others here at the church, we, we, started, uh, we started doing worship nights probably like two years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe three. It's been, it's been a while now. Probably about three years ago, we were doing worship nights once a month here. And we wanted to be able to reach more people in the community because we were having such a good time. We had people from different churches and friends of mine from different places, musicians. They were coming and, uh, and being a part of the band, and, and it was just a great time of worship with one another. But we would only have, for the most part, a lot of, a lot of our people would just show up and then maybe a, a couple others from different places. But um, it wasn't quite the turnout that we would love to have with joining the community together. And so we found that. Um, I was kind of thinking about it. I love the Rogers Theater. I love downtown area, Papa Bluff. I want to see that continue to thrive. And one of my former uh, classmates, high school classmates, she's killing it down there right now, just bringing in all kinds of different businesses and making that place look a lot better. So I'm excited to see some buildings being occupied, which is wonderful. Um, so, uh, so I have real, real big heart. I love the Rogers Theater. It's a beautiful facility. And I, I ended up getting on the board of the Rogers Theater and uh, ended up talking with them. And so we decided to host our worship nights once a quarter over at the Rogers Theater now. 
And so this Friday night at 7 p.m. at the Rogers Theater, um, it's free for anybody, so tell all the people that you want to. Um, Freshwater, it's really weird. Uh, do we have a graphic on the, maybe on the slides, the, the top? I think maybe, I don't know if I pulled it over or not. I may not have pulled it over. I know I made one, but I could have forgotten to put it up there. And that's okay. Okay, that's right. That's right. Um, you can find it if just type in freshwater. Just take out the E's on freshwater. Apparently, I have something against E's. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but water is a good acronym for worship at the Rogers, and so it just ended up working out really well. So, <laughs> um, so make sure that you guys come out. It's going to be a good time. Share it if you want to on Facebook. You can like the page. Um, it's a specific page set up there as well, too. And so that's going to be a really good time. We're really excited. We're going to do a couple Christmas worship songs, and then uh, we're going to actually end the night with communion. And so I'm really excited about being able to do that with, uh, with a bunch of wonderful people in the community who also love Jesus together. So that's going to be Friday night, 7 p.m. at the Rogers Theater. Uh, come on out. It's going to be awesome. So we just concluded our series over 1 Timothy last week. How many of you guys enjoyed the series over 1 Timothy? Lots of things to munch on and think about and... Maybe you got your, your heart pricked a little bit in the process of going through the, uh, going through the book. I uh, hope that that was a good pricking and it was something that, that was able to push you forward and think a little bit further about um, your involvement, not just with your relationship with Christ, but also within the body, the community with one another, and uh, growing with one another and reaching further out than just the four walls of the church. And so there's a lot of good things to, to munch on and, uh, and also directives to read the word and to make sure that what we're doing is we're really combing through what the Bible says about how we're supposed to live with each other and amongst each other and amongst other people in the community. And so it's really challenging to make sure that what we're doing is correct and that we're not just coming up with all kinds of religious jargon that doesn't really make sense to what the Bible is actually saying just because it sounds good or it's a part of tradition. And so this is really important. And so what I wanted to do is I've, I've really loved, ever since I, went, I started at seminary, um, I first took uh, Systematic Theology 1 and 2 with a guy named Dr. Alan Hawkins. I'm actually trying to get him to come over here one of these Sundays. I'm, I'm a teaching assistant for him right now, and so we're in the works of talking about getting him to come out here and hang out with us at least one Sunday and, uh, and speak. But really, really intelligent guy, really loved his classes. Uh, so much so that I just was chomping at the bit when he asked me to be his teaching assistant again. Uh, just because it's such a, such a challenging thing to look back at why you believe what you believe. And so in the process of taking this class for systematic theology, uh, we read this book called On the Incarnation. And uh, maybe, maybe this resonates with some of you guys, but I was not super knowledgeable about church history. At least from before Azusa Street. Some of you guys, because we're, we're in kind of the charismatic Pentecostal circles, um, you may be familiar with the, with the revival that happened called the Azusa Street Revival, which I'm, we'll get into some church history stuff later on through, through next year and, and kind of dive into, into kind of our roots, where we get our, our theology from and where we get some of our practices from and stuff like that. But, um, but I wasn't really knowledgeable, and that was in 1906, whenever all that stuff kind of happened. And so I wasn't super knowledgeable about church history besides taking the class that we had in in ministry school, but that, that kind of glossed over quickly because there's so much history that spanned from the, from the time that, that uh, the, the apostles uh, all passed away all the way through to the point to where we're at today. There's so much that occurred that led us to the point to where we're at today, to where we do what we do today. And so uh, <clears throat> this book on the incarnation was written by a guy named St. Athanasius. 
And this man was very, very, very influential on the way that, uh, on our belief systems that we have today, on lots of orthodox, tr uh, orthodox traditions. And so I wanted to do a, a, a mini-series, essentially, on this book that he wrote, because I think that it's important for us to know why we believe what we believe. Amen? Where we came from, what's, what happened in previous histories, because uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, maybe your history teacher told you when you guys were in high school, in junior high, but... Um, we study history so, do, so that we don't what? Repeat history, right? We can, we can take the good and we can try to apply that to our lives. And then we analyze the bad and we seek not to do that stuff again, right? <laughs> we try not to end up in the same kind of scenarios that they were in, doing the same kind of craziness that they ended up going into. We even do this with our own lives, right? We, we can analyze our own lives and say, this is where I was doing pretty good and that's where some things went haywire. Let's try not to get to that point to where things go haywire again, so we need to walk in maturity. And so being able to know some history is an, an opportunity for us to be more matured. And so this is going to be a, a fun um, but very interesting because it's not going to be like a typical sermon series that we've probably done before because this is going through a specific book, a writing that somebody had um, to really kind of help hone in people's understanding of, of the Trinity and of the Holy Spirit and of what Christ what it meant for Christ to come as a baby. Amen? Because, uh, I mean, that, uh, why didn't Jesus come just from the clouds and then just come screaming down and bam and provide our salvation without having to go through the process of becoming a baby and going through all this stuff? What was the reasoning behind all of this? And so um, what I want to do first before we get into talking about the book is we're going to read a little scripture because it's good to read scripture in church. Amen? <laughs> okay, so let's go to uh, the book of John, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 and then 14 through 18. So it says here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the right, uh, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this is specifically, John does a really good job of, of diving in and showing that Jesus Christ, Jesus, was not a created being. He was not a created being. There was, there was a controversy that was happening around the time that Athanasius was alive, and it was called the Arian Controversy. This individual... He was, a, uh, he, he was a priest, and he believed that Jesus Christ was a created being. And so that means that he was not an equal. He was not a part of the Trinity. He was not one. He was actually um, a created entity. So like we, are, we were created, so he also believed that Jesus Christ was created, which is false. And, and John, he deals a lot with Gnosticism in his day, uh, lots of the, the inappropriate thought processes, the secret knowledge that people thought they needed to have about who Jesus was in order to, to gain an ascended amount of their faith. 
And so we see that John, John does a great job showing that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Detailing specifically that, that Jesus, as the Word, because he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he tells us who the Word is, right? Who the Word is. The Word is Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to read just a little bit about Athanasius so you guys are a little more familiarized with this individual as we go through this short series. And this is a, an excerpt from Christian Today. They did a, a nice little article about him, and so I'm going to read just a little bit so you guys can have a good uh, de depiction of who this is. So Athanasius' enemies called him the Black Dwarf. That was, his, that was his nickname from those who did not like him. They called him the Black Dwarf. He was short, dark-skinned Egyptian uh, bishop who had a lot of enemies. He was actually exiled five times by four different Roman emperors, spending 17 of the 45 years that he served as a bishop of Alexandria in exile. So this man spent 17 years in exile because of the things that he believed and the things that he stood for. So he was kicked out of the areas, not able to be, be where he was called to. Yet in the end, his theological enemies were all exiled from the church's teachings, and it is Athanasius' writings that shaped the future of the church. I could just stop right there, and we could talk about this for the rest of the time today. This man was exiled for 17 years over what he believed, and those who were his enemies, who called him names, who slandered his name, who put him out, and who, who were completely against him, all of these individuals ended up in exile at the end of the day. And it wasn't any of their writings, any of the things that they stood for, any of the things that they were, uh, that they were toting from their pulpits that ended up shaping church history. It was the writings of Athanasius, and it was his belief system that progressed and pushed the future of the church. So most often the problem was his stubborn insistence that Arianism— which was at that time the, the popular doctrine of the day, that Athanasius believed that that was a heresy. This dispute began when Athanasius was the chief deacon assistant to Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. While Alexander preached with perhaps um, a, a lot of philosophical mu uh, um, um, ideologies um, on the Trinity, Arius, he was a presbyter or a priest, he announced that if the Father begat the Son, just like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Another one calls him, the, again, the only begotten Son, right? And so Arius, this priest, this is why, this is again, this is why it's really important that we read the Word. This is really important while we know Scripture, while we're able to, to, to rightly go through and study and see what the, what the Bible has to say. Because if we don't, then we could take one phrase and we could create an entire ideology, an entire thought process about who God is, and it'd be completely incorrect. It'd be completely wrong. So we need to be people who can study the word. And so Arius took that phrase, and he applied it, saying that if the Father begat the Son, then he who is begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this follows that there was a time when the Son was not. So he believed that there was a time where Jesus was not ever a part of existence. The argument actually caught on, but Alexander and Athanasius fought against Arius, arguing that it denied the Trinity. Christ is not of a like substance to God, they argued, but he is the same substance. 
So to Athanasius, uh, this was no splitting of theological hairs. Salvation was at issue. The only one who is fully human could atone for human sin. Only one who is fully divine could have the power to save us. So to Athanasius, this logic of the New Testament doctrine of salvation assumed the dual nature of Christ, which is fully human and fully God. Those who maintain that there was a time when Jesus was not robs God of his word like plunderers. And so the controversy spread all over the empire. Christians could be heard singing a catchy tune that championed the Arian view. There was a time when the sun was not. In every city, wrote a historian, bishop was contending against bishop and the people were contending against one another, like swarms of gnats fighting in the air. Word of the dispute made it to the newly converted emperor Constantine the Great, who was more concerned with seeing church unity than theological truth. So division in the church, he told the bishops, is worse than war. To settle the matter, he called a council of bishops. So this, I mean, this could be, this could be easily seen today, but instead of it being more of a theological controversy, it ends up being more political. You have people yelling from either side that who's right, who's wrong, and, and different pastors are just coming against each other <coughs> one after another, and people who are within the church yelling at each other as well, dividing over these different issues. And so what, what Constantine did, and this is, I have some, quite a bit of respect for Constantine for doing this. He did some wild things um, in his time at, uh, of, of rulership, but this was one thing that I really admired that he did, was he brought all these bishops he brought 1,800 bishops, invited them to a place called Nicaea. About 300 came and argued, fought, and eventually fleshed out an early version of the Nicene Creed. The council led by Alexander condemned Arius as a heretic. They exiled him and made it a capital offense to possess his writings. Constantine was pleased that peace had been restored to the church. Athanasius, whose treaty on the Incarnation, this book, laid the foundation for the Orthodox party at Nicaea. It was hailed as the noble, he was hailed as a noble champion of Christ. This bishop was simply pleased that Arianism had been defeated. But, I still had some time to move through some of this. I'm going to stop right here for a second. At some point, I want to do some, some stuff over some of the creeds that we have in uh, in, in the Christian belief system and the importance and what it was actually combating because it's important for us to know creeds. The, the second song that we sang today, this I believe, is actually from the Nicene Creed. It's from that document that Athanasius was a big part of helping write. It's a big part of, of shaping what we actually believe as Christians today. They were fighting against this controversy, the Arian controversy of, of who Jesus was. And that's why it says, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one fighting completely this, this idea that Jesus was created, therefore he could not be God because he was not the same as God, so that that would mean that if he was created, then he would be able to, um, he would not be able to offer a salvation in the same way that he would if he was fully God, which was the importance of God coming, not just as deity God, coming down from the clouds and dwelling among us and then bam, being perfect and then going on the cross, that, that would have done nothing for our humanity because he did not come down as man. He would have just come down as God. But he came down also as human, being fully God and fully man, fully man being able to take 
the, the punishment for our sins because he was man. Lived a perfect life because he combated and won over sin. He was tempted, but he did not succumb to temptation. And then he went to cross, he went to the cross, falsely accused, died on the cross, and then was raised from the grave, giving us access to full salvation as the sacrificial lamb. That's the gospel. But if we believe what Arian, uh, Arius was, was, was depicting, and, and realistically, we see this still today. There are lots of smatterings of this today in different belief systems that people believe that Jesus was more of a created being. He was uh, like, like Satan is his brother. There's a, there's a different religious system that believes that him and Satan were, were brothers, and Satan went the wrong way, and that Jesus went the right way, and then it's all kind of wacky. And so if we start to believe these things, then we negate the access that we have to salvation through Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. Very valuable for us to, to have a good concept of why this is important for us. He also wasn't just a man who, who attained a Christ spirit. Because that's also a, a different heresy that comes in. That, that Jesus was just a really good man. And then all of a sudden the Christ spirit came and dwelt, dwelt among him and indwelled him for the time. And then when he went to the cross, this Christ spirit left, allowing Jesus to die. Also false. That denies the Trinity. It denies the reality of Jesus Christ come as fully God and fully man. Okay, let's continue. So within a few months, supporters of Arius talked Constantine into ending Arius's exile. With a few private additions, Arius even signed the Nicene Creed, and the emperor ordered Athanasius, who had recently succeeded Alexander as the bishop, so now uh, Athanasius is the bishop of Alexandria. The emperor ordered Athanasius to restore the heretic to fellowship. When Athanasius refused, his enemies spread false charges against him. He was accused of murder, illegal taxation, sorcery, and treason, the last of which led Constantine to exile him to Trier after uh, now a German city near Luxembourg. Constantine died two years later, and Athanasius returned to Alexandria. But in his absence, Arianism had gained the upper hand. Now, church leaders were against him, and they banished him again. Athanasius fled to Pope Julius I in Rome. He returned in 346 AD, but in the, uh, uh, but in the type of politics of the day, was banished three more times before he came home to stay in 366 AD. By then, he was about 70 years old. But while in exile, Athanasius spent most of his time writing, mostly defending orthodoxy, but he took on pagan and Jewish opposition as well. So on uh, uh, one of his most lasting contributions in his life of uh, St. Anthony, which helped to shape the Christian ideal of monasticism, um, the book is filled with fantastic tales of St. Anthony's encounters with, uh, with the devil. Yet Athanasius wrote, do not be incredulous about what you hear of him. Consider rather that from them only a few of his feasts, uh, feats have been learned. In fact, the bishop knew that the monk personally, he knew the monk personally, and this saint's biography is one of the most historically reliable. It became an early bestseller and made a deep impression on many people, even helping lead pagans to conversion. Augustine is, most, is a most famous example. So if, if you're not familiar with this guy, St. Anthony, St. Anthony was a man who, who kind of, in a, in a sense, he kind of uh, <coughs> championed and pioneered monasticism. 
becoming a monk, going out into these different places and living this lifestyle. He was also known, <coughs> excuse me, for deliverance ministry, I believe. He, he had, there's accounts of him wrestling with, with what they call the devil, wrestling with, with, uh, with demonic forces and seeing people uh, exercised, seeing people set free, seeing people delivered of many different things that they encountered. And St. Athanasius, right here is what it's saying, is he wrote a, a large portion of the documentation of St. Anthony's life that we have today. He was, he was a main contribution to making sure that his life was well known from there. Very interesting if you get a chance to read on St. Anthony, but we're not talking about him today. Uh, so during Athanasius' first year, permanently back in Alexandria, he sent his annual letter to the churches in his area and places that he was over called the diocese. Uh, called festal, the Festal Letters. Such letters were used to fix the dates of festivals, such, such as uh, Lent, Easter, and to discuss matters of general interest. In this letter, Athanasius listed what he believed were the books that should constitute the New Testament. So listen, at this time, they did not have the New Testament fully put together and canonized. So what they had were they had letters from different church fathers, different, um, <coughs> different apostles, and those who were within the, uh, their like community or connected network of bishops that were going around that were kind of formulating and formatting what they would believe, which is why the Nicene Creed was such a massive, massive deal for them to know what they believed. Because you can imagine, I mean, if you didn't have the entirety of the New Testament, you have the Old Testament books that were, that were already kind of put and set in place, but the New Testament wasn't quite established in that way yet. So you can imagine the kind of different opinions that people would have and the kind of um, malicious intent that the enemies of the gospel would have in trying to create documents, trying to spread false information and things about who Christ was. I mean, we have a, a, a beautiful opportunity of being able to whip out our phone real quick and search through hundreds of different translations and read the Bible. Super easy. These guys did not have that kind of an opportunity, and it was actually a lot more difficult for them to go through this. You see, I'm trying to paint the, the reason why this, this letter, why this book is so valuable and so important for us today, to be able to go back and read and, and understand and see what was going on. And so, uh, and so in these, in, in his, in his, uh, in his recommendation, he said, in these 27 writings alone, the teachings of godliness is proclaimed. He wrote that no one may add to them, nothing may be taken away from them. Though such other lists have been um, and, and would still be proposed, it is Athanasius' list that the church eventually adopted, and it, it is the one that we use to this day. So again, this, this man is a huge reason why the 27 books of the New Testament that we have are the ones that we continue to read to this day when we count as Scripture. You can see the, the reasoning behind some of this, too. I've had, I've had different conversations with people asking about why other books have not been considered in the canon of Scripture. Whenever there's some good um, historical evidence that there is some truth to it. And this is a, a really easy, short explanation of why this, these 27 books that we have in the New Testament is laid out the way it is. And he said, uh, I'll read it again. In these 27 writings alone, <clears throat> the teaching of godliness is proclaimed. And no one may add to them, and nothing may be taken away from them. This is very important. The teachings of godliness is proclaimed. It's not to highlight an individual. There are some other books that have a lot of exterior motives or some exterior peripheral things that aren't centr central to the gospel. 
And these, these things that are written in these 27 letters, from Paul's writings to some of the other apostles um, that, that wrote to the church and to different individuals, these are very specific in pointing us to godliness and to holiness and to righteousness so that all these things are done to honor God and not to glorify individuals. And so that is St. Athanasius. There is a specific book that St. Athanasius wrote right before he wrote on the Incarnation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly go through this um, just for a second this morning, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll close with just a little bit of the beginnings of On the Incarnation. And then the following weeks leading up to Christmas Day, uh, we're going to conclude with a general overview of this book. This is merely just an introduction to what we're going to be getting into, and I felt like I needed to do this just because um, how many of you guys are familiar with St. Athanasius before we started talking about it today? Right. His, I mean, even his name is not something that you're like, oh, hey, what are you guys going to name your child? Athanasius sounds awesome. Not typically what it is. It's more, you know, what Americanized or Westernized. You, you don't typically see Athanasius on the roster whenever you're a substitute teacher walking through students' names on the list. And so I wanted to be able to paint a little bit of a picture of this man and why this writing is so important for us. Okay, so he wrote another, another passage, which is really the prequel to this book. So it's the book that he wrote that leads us to get to where we're at in, on the Incarnation, and it's called Against the Gentiles. And realistically, On the Incarnation is one of the classic texts of early Christianity. Its influence on all later theology cannot be understated. It could be described as a defining exposition of the Nicene theology, certainly as understood by later Christian traditions. And for this reason, it requires to be read very carefully and sensitively. Athanasius, he expounds on the central mystery of Christian theology, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But in a manner that doesn't just embrace the day, like the Christmas morning day that we celebrate, but all the reasons before that leads us to the position of why Christ was born. His claims have, have been provided as being an elementary instruction and an outline of the faith in Christ and his divine manifestation to us. As the opening words of on the incarnation, he says this. He says, in what proceeds we have sufficiently treated. Which really tells us that what he talked about before really goes into what we're getting ready to talk about now. And so what, he, what we have to do is we have to consider his writing on the, uh, against the Gentiles to understand on the incarnation. Realistically, against the, uh, the Gentiles, I won't go through and read all this because there's, there's quite a bit that I would love to just read. We could just do like a little book club or something like that. We can sit and read it all. That'd be awesome. Um, but what he does uh, in, in his letter against the Gentiles is he goes against idolatry. He really pinpoints idolatry in, in individuals' lives. You can tell that, um, that Paul's letter to Timothy hadn't quite fully manifested, right? With all the idolatry that was going on, all the in, uh, inappropriate thought processes, which also goes to show us that there's lots of hope for us. <laughs> That as we go through and we learn and we grow, that there will be some people who misunderstand and they may not follow after Christ in the way that, that scripture withholds. But it shows that there are faithful people who continue to share the good news of the gospel. From the, from the, from the beginning of time all the way through to today, we still have people who continue to state the goodness of God and the necessity of him in our lives. And how he can transform us only, purely. Pure and simple. Only Christ can transform us 
into who we were actually supposed to be and created to be. It cannot be some other person. It cannot be some higher knowledge. It cannot be anything else that you could try to ascribe to to make yourself feel higher than any other individual. One of the greatest importances for Athanasius is that demonic activity of idolatry, which was prevailing everywhere, has been vanquished on the cross so that now Christ alone is worshipped and nothing else. Being able to see idolatry in the lives of individuals is the thing that shows a barometer for for how people understand who God is. It's also very important for on the incarnation because whenever we start to apply idolatry to our lives, that means that we remove the we remove the image of who God is in us. Because we were created as imagers of God as we create something that is lifeless in our own image. What we create in idolatry ends up being the soured nature of sin that pulls us, entices us, and manipulates us to do things that are other than what is honorable to God. The Genesis account says that we were made in the image of God, and so we should be the only, idols isn't a good word, but it kind of is at the same time. We are are made as an image, as 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 an image, direct image of who God is in his nature. Therefore, it is not God who has created sin, it is man who has allowed sin to manipulate them into going outside of the barometer of who God is. I'll I'll read this excerpt real quick and then we'll, we'll start to close down. Athanasius talks about how the word of the cross, how Christ on the cross was the origin of idolatry, emphasizing that idolatry and evil, more generally, is not from the beginning. That is, it's it's not a proper characteristic of created existence from God, but rather a deviation from the right relationship between God and creation. And he says this, for having no obstacle to the knowledge of the divine, he continuously contemplates by his purity the image of the Father, the God word, after whose image he was made, He was awestruck when he grasped the providence which through the word extends through the universe. Being raised above the sensual and every bodily appearance, cleaving instead to the power of his mind, to the divine and intelligible realities in heaven. For when the mind of human beings has no intercourse with bodies, nor has mingled with it from outside anything of their desires, but is entirely above them as it was in the beginning, then transcending all the, th- all the senses and all human things, it is raised up on high and beholding the word, sees in him also the father of the word, taking pleasure in contemplating him and being renewed by its desire for him. So this is where some people would want to say this is a little Gnostic. It kind of separates the mind and the body. But in reality, what Athanasius is trying to drive home is the same thing that Paul was saying. Therefore, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because the flesh lusts after the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. They are both contrary one to another. So you can't do the same things that you would have done before, before you knew Christ. If your gaze is so set on Christ Jesus, what he did for you at the cross, 
and the resurrection that he provided in salvation. Then you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh because you will not be in awe and wonderment of what the desires of the flesh will bring you. Instead, you will be in awe and wonderment of what Christ can do in you, through you, and for others who are around you. Jesus didn't come in the form of a baby just so that we can exchange gifts. We could sing some, some, some holiday theme songs. We can gather and we can eat with one another. Although those are all great and wonderful things that we, we enjoy around this tradition of the holidays. But he came because we lived in a, sin, in a sinful world. We live in a sinful wor- world. One that at the beginning of creation, when people listened to another voice, and obeyed that voice instead of the voice of the Holy Spirit, instead of the voice of God. They deviated and then dishonored God. Trying to take matters into their own hands and create their own destiny outside of the grace of God, they fell. And because of that falling, people all throughout, cre- all throughout the universe, all throughout the, all throughout the world, start to seek after things that please themselves and it dishonors God in that process because everything that comes from God is good and so if we seek after God then he will he will bestow upon us all things that are good and and he will bring bring all things that were horrible and he will turn those and make it into something that's good we see that in scripture for I know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes if we are believers then we're called according to his purposes And so we need to honor God in the midst of all those things, not seeking after something that's self-serving because that usually ends up being something that harms somebody else. Because when we start to be selfish, we begin to take away. When we take away, we remove things from other people and remove opportunities for others to be able to understand and, and acknowledge God's love. The beautiful thing is that God snatched us up from the miry pit. We could not have done that on our own, and nobody could have done that for us. That is something that God reached down, and he did that for us. It's a bit intrusive into your lives, but it's when we're in that humble place that we're more apt to understand and see that we're in need of a Savior. He pulled us out of that place and showed us the way of salvation. And if many of you guys remember the time that you answered to the Holy Spirit's call, knowing that he desired to love you and desires to have you as his own, then you remember the awe nature that you had, the bewilderment, the desire for more. Wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. Maybe the weight that was lifted off of your shoulders. But as time progresses, sometimes we tend to forget of that awe and wonderment. And we seek after things again and make our own idols, which is why it's important for us to keep our mind and our eyes on the cross of Christ, grabbing your cross, taking your cross and following after him on a daily basis. Not saying that you have to get saved every day. That's incorrect theology. But saying that you need to make sure that you're not succumbing to desires of the flesh. Saying that I'm going consistently after the cross. This is who Christ is and this is what he did for me. And I'm going to continue to follow him in everything that I do. Laying down my selfish ambition, laying down my desire for bickering, laying down my desire for gossip, Laying down my desire for cheating, laying down my desire for, uh, for, for ill will for people, laying down my desire for, for, for violence, laying down my desire 
for addiction, laying down these desires, as every single day I go and I choose Jesus. And knowing that there's grace as I kneel before the cross. Knowing that I don't have to be perfect because I'm not the Savior. And so having grace for myself to go to the cross instead of punishing myself by sneaking away, feeling that I'm going to be punished correctly by just removing myself from his presence. When in reality, it's the presence of Jesus is the only thing that can set you free. But if we have a low view of who Christ is, then it will be very easy for us to try to take matters into our own hands. Which is why on the incarnation is such a valuable piece of literature for us to be able to understand and know. Christ is greater than any other human that ever walked the earth. And he is unlike anybody else who has ever come. Who was before him and whoever came after him. He is the only one. The beautiful thing that we get to have now is that as we pursue after Christ, as we submit ourselves to him, we will find that he will deliver to us a much better outcome in our lives of transformation, of understanding of one another, of grace for other people, of having patience, and of removing selfishness from our, from our thought process. Because we understand the gravity of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection, which then leads us to go backwards again and see the incredible nature of what happened at the incarnation. That when Christ the Savior truly was born, as we sang this morning, Silent Night, I can, I can only imagine that these, these individuals that came around to come and see Christ, as, as the hosts of heaven were singing and proclaiming the good news of, of the Christ being born, that they also would be skipping and laughing and singing, knowing that they would get to see the Savior's face. a wonderful opportunity we have to now to behold the Savior in our lives to listen to his Holy Spirit that there is not a lesser order of them in the kingdom Trinity three and one are here always and forever God sent his son the son sent his Holy Spirit none of them lesser some people view the Holy Spirit as much lesser than even Jesus and Jesus lesser than God there's no subordinationism that's within the, the Trinity. They honor and love one another in the midst of it. It's a mystery. It's crazy. I can't fully explain it because I don't fully understand it. But the beautiful thing is, is that he's there. He's always been there and he will always be there. So let's stand, stand this, uh, this morning. I want you to just take a, f- we're going to take a f- just a few moments right now. Just a few moments and I want you to contemplate Contemplate, are there or have there been or is there a time right now where I have viewed Christ as lesser in my life? I viewed him as maybe maybe being very humanistic and able to maybe deal with some things at those times, but he doesn't know what I'm struggling with right now. He's never had social media. He never had to, to call a family member on the phone and deal with them there. He never had to deal with addiction in this way he never maybe maybe you have a specific ideology of of what christ is able to do in your life i want you to think back at those moments where you saw christ as being weaker i want you to ask the holy spirit to forgive you for that low view of who jesus is maybe you view him as being all too godly and, and and distant and disconnected from 
from your reality and from your life. Maybe you view him as the big guy in the sky, essentially, almost like the Greek, Greek mythology, uh, Greek mythology where they, they viewed that all the gods were distant and they were out doing their own thing up in, in Mount Hala or wherever, and, uh, and they were just hanging out, but they weren't intervening with you until they just selfishly wanted something from you. So you view Jesus as not a personal, as not one who's with you all, at all times. Maybe he's all powerful, but he's all uncaring. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to forgive you for seeing Jesus as that way, for viewing God as, as a distant God with, without compassion or love. And then the third is maybe you, maybe you understand that, that God was fully God, fully man. You have, a, you have a good comprehension of that, and you believe that he's there for you and things like that. But, but maybe you are full of pride this morning and feel like you can get done and you can do all the things without his assistance in your life. Yeah, Jesus is good for somebody else because there's some real screwed up people around there, but he don't, he, I don't need him too much. I just need him enough to, to get saved, and that's it. You know, that, was, that was almost too much. I, I may not even need that. So if you feel that you have been prideful in your understanding of Christ or you don't even seek to, to speak to him or love him or spend time with him, then ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to your heart and repent of that. Regardless if you're in either of those three categories or if you might not find yourself in any of those, dare I suspect that maybe we could be a part of a bit of all three at times. I think we can all pray this prayer of conviction, asking the Holy Spirit to convict you of all the things that are going on in your life so that you can draw closer to Him and not stiff-arm your way through your life, holding God at arm's, arm's length distance. convicted of, of actually reading your word so you can know what it says. So that when trials and circumstance comes your way, you don't have a low view or a distant view of your Savior. As if he was only capable of get, offering you salvation, but you've got to figure everything else out on your own. Let me tell you, Jesus loves you so much. And he desires to be with you through every single circumstance. Through every single up, every single down, every single mediocre uh, time that you're alive. Every moment, he's there. He wants to be included in that. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, for men and women who came before us who have been able to write wonderful pieces of material that we can still use today in understanding your love and your grace for us and your desire for us to, to know you more and to grow even, even deeper in our understanding of who you are. Thank you, Father, for a church family. Thank you that we get to come together and we get to celebrate who you are and your majesty here with one another. Thank you that we can encourage one another, we can be with one another, we can pray with and for one another. Thank you for those who have studied and have great knowledge that they can pass down on each and every one of us. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from one another, that no one person has arrived and we can all glean from one another as we follow after you. So Father, I pray for wisdom and understanding. I pray for grace and compassion. I pray for conviction and for love. I pray for restoration and for healing, especially around this holiday season where it tends to be a little more painful for others who have had rifts in relationships.
So I pray, Father, that you'll start to unite families. You'll start to unite hearts. You'll mend the brokenness. That those areas that people have allowed to die in their hearts, that that will be reawakened and it will be healed. It will be restored. And it will be functional once again. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. If you would like prayer, we're going to be up here. So feel free to come on down and we'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday morning. Enjoy your afternoon. Eat with somebody. Go say hi to one another. Love on one another. We'll see you guys next week.